0: This is the Portside Pod, the official podcast of the Stockton Ports. I'm the voice of the Ports, Alex Jensen, and on today's episode, Ken Korak shares stories from his broadcasting career, including his time in the Cal League, memories with the A's, and what it was like to work with the Hall of Famer Bill King in part two of my conversation with the A's lead voice. During these trying times, Chase Chevrolet is still open and here to serve you. With their Easy Pass service, you can shop online and have your new pre-owned vehicle delivered right to your door. Learn more at ChaseChevrolet.com slash EasyPass. Ken, how much have you missed baseball, if you could put that into words?
1: Well, that's a great question, Alex. There's been so much going on in the world that there have been times, honestly, when I've missed it, but there's been so much going on that kind of seems like a lot of things are bigger than baseball right now and you know I'll preface this by going back to what we talked about earlier and that is that the importance for me of doing the games and we talked about shut-ins and people who haven't uh, been able to experience kind of the joy and the the release and the diversion of uh, listening to baseball obviously and the reality is that there are a lot of people that rely on baseball for work I've talked to A lot of really good friends who, uh, you know, many of them work in television who haven't been getting paid. So all those things we we understand um, are part of the game that are really important right now. But you think about uh, this being this has been a really intense time in our history. And I think for all of us and, of course, with the pandemic and we talked about that during you know the, the earlier part of the interview. But the killing of George Floyd and BLM and I think for me and for a lot of people it's a time of introspection so and it, you know with with all of the news coverage and my wife and I watched so much of that that during that time baseball just was not at the forefront for me and when i talk about you know introspection it's i, I think obviously i'm i'm not alone in this but you 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 think about how can I be better? How can I be a better person? What can I do to make the world a better place? So, uh, so those, are, those are things that have occupied a lot of my time, I think. And, and there are people that, that are so more intensely involved as far as bringing about change that, that my hat goes off to those folks right now, Alex. So, But when baseball starts, uh, we'll be ready to go.
0: Oh, you and me both, and we, we I mean, we—we we both know change is needed uh, in in more ways than one. But I mean, I think you said it perfectly. I mean, not just the coronavirus, but uh, you know, the the systemic problems, we, issues we have right now in this country, kind of puts baseball into perspective. And I think everyone's going to welcome baseball back when it comes back. That's not to say that that uh, you know that that change isn't needed in in many different areas and and certain ones in particular in America, in our country. And going on for centuries, right? Yep. One of the things, and it may be
1: idealistic, I would just love for this country to become a more civil society. I don't think that's that much that, that tough of a thing to ask for. Can we become more civil and respectful of each other? So, uh, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that the that, that change will be on the horizon. It's a Long path. But I think there has been an awakening um, in the country. If anything good can come of what's been going on, uh, that maybe some positive things like that can can take place.
0: How did you get started in broadcasting? I mean, who were your influences? What made you want to do this?
1: Well, from the time that I can remember, I wanted to do it. I mean, that's how lucky I've been. Mm -hmm like I said, I grew up in LA, so you had these incredible influences. And I've said this, I think from the first time I heard Vin Scully's voice, I wanted to be a broadcaster. And that goes back to when the Dodgers moved from Brooklyn in 1958. So we had Scully and we had Chick Hearn, we had Dick Enberg, great influences, Tom Kelly on USC and Fred Hessler on the UCLA games back then. And then of course, late at night, I could tune in the warrior games and hear Bill King. So in California, we had this incredible wealth of announcing influences for someone like me so I was fascinated by it Alex and even news Uh, there was a time when I thought about maybe pursuing um, doing the news as far as uh, at least a a part of uh, my career path so I would tune in games late at night through the static like a lot of kids back in those days or even today for sure and you could you could hear the New Mexico games the Lobos out of Albuquerque or you'd hear a game out of Denver. No like I said, listen to games from here up in the Bay Area, KCBS. I was lucky to work for them for a couple of years. And I think even back then they had the Stanford package. So there was a fascination I had with it from the time that basically from the time uh, I was really young, honestly. And then as far as getting into it, I was I, it took me a long time to really develop the I always thought that when I made the decision to get into broadcasting full time, I had to be totally dedicated, focused on it, that there'd be no turning back. So I wanted to have that, um, that kind of tunnel vision once I started. And I moved to Northern California, got a job at a golf course up in Santa Rosa. My good friend, Kelly Wolf was the head pro at Bennett Valley, the uh, municipal course in Santa Rosa. He hired me as his assistant and that allowed me to, pursue a broadcasting job in a small town because without any experience, you're not going to walk into a, a station in San Francisco or, or in LA and get a job. So it was a perfect place to be. And it, it allowed me to get a, a start as a broadcaster in a, a small station in Petaluma that is no longer in existence. KTOB top of the bay of radio, thousand Watts and two fifty night. But they had a very understanding audience too there for someone who, uh, was really green and had no experience. So that's how I started.
0: Can you remember some of the maybe like high school games or, or like how did, how did you start doing play-by-play at that radio station and in, 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 in the Santa Rosa area?
1: Well, I started out, actually what happened is I applied for, actually sent a tape there because I had gone all over the Bay Area to the Coliseum or the Candlestick. I did a basketball game at USC at the Sports Arena LA between Utah and USC. And that's how I made my audition tape. I read the newspaper. That was my little news audition tape. And I sent the stuff out to the stations in Sonoma County. And the program director at KTLB was a really talented broadcaster named Bob Nathan. who became a, one of the news anchors on a big station in Sacramento. And Bob hired me. And he said, all I can offer you is a disc jockey's slot on Saturday mornings from 6 until 10. Now, there are more chickens awake in Petaluma at 6 in the morning than there are humans <laughs> sometimes, I think. And so I had a great time at that station, loved the city, loved living there. and But that's what I did to start. And I told him, I said, literally, I don't even know how to cue up a record. Because in those days, you still had turntables and a big board where everything, you know, you ran all of the sound through this big board. He said, well, we have a very understanding audience. So... That's how I started. But they were doing stations like that, Alex, are dinosaurs now because they provided this incredible, well-rounded broadcasting education right. where they carried the city council meetings live. We did live election coverage. Nothing I've done in my career, I think, can top the adrenaline rush when you're anchoring on, on election night. That was incredible. And they did high school games. Uh, the farthest north they went was Rancho Catati High up in uh, Rohnert Park. And then they did Petaluma High, Casa Grande on the east side of the home of Johnny Gomes and then um, St. Vincent High. So there were four high schools that we covered and they did football and basketball live and then taped the baseball games. We would go to a local field with a cassette recorder. You'd never, never you you wouldn't know what I'm, you know.
0: All digital for my-
1: What that is like, right? Right, yeah we went to the the ballparks and sat in the stands with the families and the friends and would do the baseball games into a cassette recorder. And then we'd come back at night and replay them at seven o'clock. And when I started there, they had two people already doing the games. Ron Walters, who was a legend in Petaluma, kind of the the Bill King of Petaluma because he was so well-rounded and, um, you know, erudite guy that, was a, you know, the Renaissance man thing has been overused in talking about Bill, although I used it in the title of my book. But Ron was the Bill King of of Petaluma. So he did the sports line with a guy named Kevin Rafferty, who was the number two guy in this really small sports department. So I just had to kind of work my way in. And when there was an opportunity, when they needed somebody to do a game that nobody else was available for, that's how I started doing high school games. And that was in the fall of 1980. That was 40 years ago,
0: man. Time flies.
1: Yeah, oh yeah, it sure does. <laughs> 1980.
0: And that, event, that eventually led you into the Cal League, which it did. probably not everybody knows. The Redwood Pioneers uh, played in Roanoke Park, and, and you were the voice of the Redwood Pioneers for how long?
1: Well, and I mentioned Kevin, whose primary job there was doing sales, and then he was an aspiring broadcaster, did play-by-play. And the Pioneers had moved to Roner Park, I think, in 79, 79 or 80. And then they moved into Roner Park Stadium, which is no longer, but was really a cool little ballpark for, the, for minor league ball and later for the Sonoma Crushers in independent ball. And he worked out a deal in 81 to carry 50 games on our station, 25 home, 25 on the road. He asked me to be his number two guy. And so I was the number two guy there and I did 25 home games. Also did two games that year at San Diego stadium and also at Anaheim stadium against the Reno Padres, because there was, as you know, there was a work stoppage during the literally knocked out about two months of the 81 season. So I got to do, we got to do two games at the big league ballparks that year, Cal league games. So I did like 27 games that year. Didn't do any professional baseball in 82 and 83, and then I wound up doing the full season for the Pioneers in 84. And they had this incredible star-studded team. But, so that was my last year doing uh, baseball in the Cal League.
0: What were some of the names on that team? This
1: on the 84 said, team?
0: Star-studded, right? What, what well, they were there?
1: 53 and 17 in the second half.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: Yeah, they had this huge – I forget the winning streak. Uh, but they had this huge winning streak in the second half. They were 91-48 and 48 for the year, but 53-17 and 17 in the second half. So they won every game. They, and then they lost to Modesto, the A's, Modesto A's. In At the that playoffs, time, the
0: Modesto and,
1: A's, yeah. And Canseco hit a home run that is still in orbit, landed, I think, on the other side of the 101 freeway. But we had Devon White in center field. He okay. was one of the great defensive center fielders, world, has a couple World Series rings, uh, one of the – great defensive outfielders in the history of the game. Love calling his games. It was a thrill of middle watching him play. Taught me a lot about broadcasting fly balls actually, because I would say line drive to left center, gonna drop for a bit, oh, and he catches it. I had, I, because he caught everything. He was, he was, it was magical. So I had, I learned how to wait on calls to the outfield because of why, just have that little governor so you don't anticipate. And then Mark McLemore at second base. Mark had a long career in the big leagues. Both those guys had great you careers. Know. We had a third baseman named Jack Howell, who is still working. And right now, of course, tragically for all you guys, he's not working in the minor leagues. But he's a single-A manager in the Angels organization right now in the Midwest League, I think. And he was a third baseman in the big leagues and also over, played overseas uh two or three years. Good player. Uh, we had a catcher named Carl Nichols who played in the big leagues. Mm. A couple of other pitchers made it up, including Bob Kipper, who is a really good left-handed pitcher and, be, and still I think is working in the minor leagues. For a while was the Red Sox pitching coach, I think on an, on an interim basis maybe. And he was, the, uh, he was the pitcher of the year in the Cal League that year. And there might've been a couple of relievers who made it. And the other thing is that we had a backup infielder named Mike Rizzo, who has a World Series ring right now from last year, of course. <laughs> it's the, uh, the GM of the Nationals, as you know, so and Tom Kochman was the manager of the team and Tom's son Casey was a, a good player, first baseman for many years
0: I think that's one, one, one of my favorite things about about baseball and, and you know particularly pro right. baseball, which I'm, I'm, I've learned more and more over the last couple of years and I'm still learning is that everything is is so intertwined and, and you know the, the network just has such far reaching tentacles, but it, it seems like everything comes to a crossroads at one point. Well that's
1: one of the great things that you're gonna experience as you start broadcasting in the minor leagues. I hope you get a chance soon. <laughs> I know you were gonna do it this year in Stockton and for the ports and it's such a shame, but you know, like everybody else, I mean all over the world and, and the country. So hoping for a restart for everyone hopefully next year. But you'll you'll develop this reservoir of information and contacts and there are still people that i know from back then from 40 years ago and so that just kind of builds with every game that you do you have a chance to get better and learn that's one of the great things about working in the minor leagues and and all those things that you learn from hanging out around the batting cage even back working in able and the people you meet and that just kind of builds over time and you and you develop that reservoir.
0: It's the perfect time to purchase a new car today at Chase Chevrolet. Take advantage now of model year end inventory reduction prices and supplier pricing on select 2019 vehicles. You can always count on Chase Chevrolet for the best prices, best service, and easiest car buying experience. And now, back to our episode. So for you, how did your career, how, how did you wind up in the big leagues and, and eventually with the A's?
1: very I've you know alex i just i've been really fortunate too i've been lucky i've gotten great breaks i've had some people who are real responsible for me being here uh, who believed in me i think and and i think we all need that time and again during our careers but the abridged version and i can get long-winded of course was after the cal league i spent five years working in aaa two years in phoenix and three years in vegas and then 1992, the White Sox were looking for a third person in their broadcast booth. They had hired the late, great Ed Farmer, who was one of those people that was so instrumental for me, it was my tour guide around the American League. But Ed had not done any play-by-play. He had a long career in the Big Leagues, pitched for the A's. The last team he pitched for in the Big Leagues was the A's, was an all-star reliever for the White Sox, of working scouting and front office work. White Sox brought him back to Chicago to work with... The great John Rooney, who's now on the Cardinals broadcast with Mike Shannon. John was the lead broadcaster then. Ed had really no experience just doing some fill-in work, hadn't done really any play-by-play. And John was the voice of CBS radio back then, CBS Radio Sports, which kind of loosely is the equivalent of what ESPN does now. They did all the baseball playoffs, they did the final four regional finals, and John was their main guy. And John left the White Sox every weekend to join CBS to do the game of the week on radio. Like ESPN does the Sunday night game now and ESPN yeah. radio also does the Sunday night. And so John would do the Sunday night game on radio and they needed somebody to fill in for him. And that's how I got my first job in the big leagues. The White Sox hired me and I joined, I commuted to join them every weekend. And the thing that was really unusual about that and helped me out so much was that when you come in from the minor leagues that happens a lot right that you wind up as the number two guy and that's a great honor and it's a great opportunity no matter how many innings you do even if it's just two or three innings but i became i was the lead guy for every game that i did even though i did just one game a week but i did that for four years so on a huge station in chicago and a big network that was a, a really a stroke of luck for me. I was, it was fortuitous. So that was, a, it. I think Alex, it, it gave my career a little credibility, a little extra boost. Mm-hmm. And so when um, the A's made what, the, when Lon Simmons did not return to the A's broadcast, who was one of my idols, I should say parenthetically, awkward to replace him. But uh, they were looking for someone to replace Lon for the 96 season, and I got hired to work with Bill.
0: I can only imagine what that would be like to – I guess, you know, your, your partner right now, Vince, be the same thing where you're, you, you're replacing kind of a, a local legend, right?
1: Something for Vince to replace Bill.
0: Yeah, no no question. It really was,
1: and especially because, like Vince, I think he even said, the first game he did, fans didn't have a chance to say goodbye to Bill yeah. because he died so suddenly. In October of '05. he was intent on coming back and working full-time the next year. He went in for hip surgery and, you know, sadly never left the hospital. So that was, a, that was tough. I mean, but Bill was so – and we've talked about this a lot, you and me, Alex, but Bill was so gracious to me and so supportive of me that he eased the transition for me, because I'm sure a lot of the A's fans were thinking, who is this guy? You know, unless you had listened to San Jose State, because I had done San Jose State football and basketball for seven years, and I'd worked at KCBS a little bit in the 80s. But so unless you were really kind of tuned into that, you had not had any prior uh, experience listening to me. And so, you know, Lon was missed. And I don't think you can go into that situation thinking, you know, I have to replace Lon Simmons. it's a tough lesson to learn, I think, in any profession, but you have to be yourself and not think about that kind of stuff.
0: What do you remember about your first big league game? With the A's or the White Sox. The
1: first game with the White Sox was actually at the Oakland Coliseum. Wow, really? Yeah, that I had done it was a Sunday afternoon in early April of nineteen ninety two. And I'd have to go back and look it up. I think the White Sox won the game, but McGuire and Canseco Homered, or one of them had Homered in the game and we were living down in morgan hill we had a home in morgan hill but we were in the process of moving to vegas because i had gotten hired by unlv to do their football and basketball Mm -hmm. and i literally was sitting was doing the game at the coliseum which is where i'd watched so many ace games as a fan and had made my audition tape sitting in the stands trying to get a baseball tape so I remember because I had done some spring training games for the Sox in Sarasota, and I remember, I remember telling Farmer during one of the commercial breaks. I said, "You know, Ed, this game is really intense." And he turned to me, goes, "It's the major leagues, pal. <laughs> you know, this is the way it is." Because <laughs> it was a lot. It was. It's a lot different, obviously, and you know. I hope you'll have that – I really believe you'll have that chance to experience that yourself, my friend.
0: Oh, I appreciate that. That.
1: Was, that was a really cool thing. My first game for the A's, of course, was at Cashman Field in Las Vegas because they were, quote, renovating the Coliseum.
0: I remember that. that so your first game was back in Vegas.
1: Yeah. They How were, funny is that? Yeah. They, they were compromising the integrity of the Coliseum as a baseball park. Yeah. When the Raiders I like the way came you put back. it there. Yeah, right. <laughs> Speaking euphemistically. And so we opened the season in Vegas where I had done AAA games. And I, I, all, I think I literally sat in the same seat I had sat in when I was doing AAA games as the A's opened the season in 96 against the Indians or against the Tigers and the Blue Tigers and
0: Blue Jays. Wow. I didn't know that. I, I didn't know that the, your first game with the A's yeah. was actually at your, you know, the place you called AAA games for a few years.
1: Yeah, called it a, a triple play, actually, on an incredible sprawling catch in right center field on the warning track by Ernie Young, who was the A's center fielder back then on a ball that was hit by Bobby Higginson of the Tiger. Wow. Memories, <laughs> man.
0: Memories, exactly. I, I love how you can, you know, I, when you say it, I can picture it. <clears throat> uh, so you mentioned Bill King, and Bill King, obviously, not just a, an A's legend, but an a Bay Area legend, a Northern California legend, a broadcasting legend, uh, you know, Ford C. Frick Award winner in, in 2017. I, one, of, one of my favorite parts of working with you guys the last couple of years, Ken, is, is being able to hear some of the stories of, of, about Bill. Because I, you know, I grew up listening to Bill, and, uh, but I didn't know until I read your book what, you know, the, kind of the eccentric personality that he had.
1: The totality of Bill.
0: The totality of Bill. Right. right. So uh, when, when you and Bill were partners for that stretch of time, what did you take away from that? You know, what, what, did, what did you learn? What did you enjoy about working with Bill King?
1: 247 pages worth there. Whatever <laughs> it was, 267, I think. Do you have, a, you have three hours? It was just... It was I just, got however long you want. It was just the greatest experience of my career to work with someone who was my idol or one of my idols as a kid. I mean that sincerely. It was a thrill a minute. And the thing, I mean, we could go on and on, but obviously Bill, there was so much depth to Bill, not just his broadcasting, but as a person. He was governed by his passions. He had myriad interests. Obviously he was off the chart. His intellect was off the chart. And so one of the things I've said about him from a broadcasting standpoint, first of all, he was very supportive of me. He was never critical. Uh, There were times when he would make suggestions, oftentimes about the language, because he was a virtuoso when it came to the English language. You know, if I said uh, during a half, during on a play that so-and-so's forte was going to his left, Bill would turn to me like during the commercial break and he would say, Ken, forte is okay, but fort is preferable. So, you know, that was what it was like working with Bill. And I've talked to Greg Papa about this and Greg said, I would have been so intimidated to work with Bill because if you use the wrong word with someone who has such a command of the English language, it would be a little embarrassing, but he was, he was very demanding in a good way. I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but he was like taking a class in broadcasting from one of those really stern professors that you had, that you you'd never wanted to let that person down and you knew that they would make you better. And he was always supportive. Stern might not even be the right word, but just, he demanded that you did the best you possibly could because that's the way he approached his job. Bill got every ounce out of every day that he possibly could. And that's the way he approached his broadcasts. He didn't put pressure on me in terms of what he would say, but you wanted to do the best you could because you knew that that's the way he approached his life.
0: I always really enjoyed his, you know, when you guys are doing the game sometimes, you, you know, you guys and and the great Michael J. Baird would make reference to some of the clips that, that uh, Mr. Baird had archived. And I got to listen to a few of those, which were, uh, I mean, some of them are just laugh out loud funny.
1: Well, I tried to get to him. Yeah, I mean, I would come to the ballpark, there were many days when I came to the ballpark thinking, I'm going to get to Bill, I'm going to try to get him going, because that was the best thing, I think, for our fans. Like, rain delays were like incredible Bill King theater, but even during a game, especially if it was a bad game, anything goes, as far as I was concerned. I didn't care. I mean, if we started talking about, what was it like to hang out with Will Chamberlain? I think fans want to hear about that from Bill, right? especially in the midst of a bad game or the 70, the, the 75 warrior season was Bill's favorite year as a broadcaster. It was his favorite team, even with all the great A's teams and as emotionally invested as he was in the A's. So you get him going on, going to the opera or the theater or his eating habits. And there were so many other things that were fun to kind of chide him about. And it didn't you know, prod him a little bit to kind of get him going because he was, and that's the way he was when you went out to dinner with him. Going out to dinner with Bill was 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 such a a great experience. It was almost like people you had to take a number to get in line to because everybody in the traveling party who was from the Bay Area relished an opportunity to have dinner with Bill because you know a couple of glasses of wine and the stories would start flowing and the it, it was just it was a remarkable. He was he was one of the most remarkable human beings on, that, that's ever lived. I think. And I think people have said this, and I believe it, the greatest radio broadcaster who's ever lived.
0: My dad always talks about how great of a, a basketball broadcaster he was. Do you think he had a, a, a preference, or do you think he had a best sport? People
1: people up here have debated debated that for years, right? They have. And I don't want to get into the debate. I think, I think people look back on – his days with the Warriors and also to a certain degree with the Raiders with such great fondness for good reason. One of the, one of the reasons for that was that radio really was your link to the team back then when he was doing the Warriors, there weren't that many games that were televised. And then when they televised, he did the simulcast oftentimes. So Bill was your conduit. So I think we look back fondly on those days because of the magic of radio. And that, that was the, The way that if you wanted to follow the team, you had to do it on the radio. He was an incredible radio announcer for basketball. And I borrowed from a lot of his, I mean, he had a huge profound influence on me in my my broadcasting of, of college basketball and football too. He was incredible. But I'm glad he got the Frick Award because I think it validated what he had done in baseball too, Alex. Baseball was his favorite sport. It was his first love. He was really a baseball guy. It was a sport that he played as a kid. He was a very good catcher. But as far as what sport was his best, I'll leave that to other people to try to figure out. I'm not going to go there.
0: I like it. I like it. I wish I could have heard him do basketball and football because my, my dad would talk about how great he was doing the Warriors. Because you talked about the 75 Warriors. you know, My parents, I think they went to a lot of those games with, with Rick Barry and beating the Bullets in, in the championship
1: swept the bullets in four games, played the championship series at the Cal Palace because the Coliseum Arena had been booked. Mm. And he was amazing. Like one thing that Hank Greenwald told me when I was doing the research for the book was that Bill could see things before anybody else. He could see a player on the other side of the court coming around to screen to get in position to catch a pass. And he would, it was like a two or three or four dimensional broadcast with Bill because he had great anticipation but he knew the game so well and he was so fast. It was this staccato rhythm that he had that he could see things developing before even maybe the coaches could see them. And then the Raider stuff was great. I mean, he gave you such a – he was the first guy I ever heard or gal, first person I ever heard do uh, football on the radio who would tell you not only the receivers were left and right and the tight end was right, the ball on the right hash, and, but he would tell you that – the defensive backs who were covering the receivers. I'd never heard anybody do that, you know. He'd say Bolitnikoff is wide right and, you know, covered by Smith or whatever, you know, branch to the left with Jones. And so it was this – it was – he painted the picture with incredible detail.
0: I wish I got a chance. I could hear stories about Bill King all day. Do you have any favorite uh, memories with the A's? Any on-field moments or, you know, anything that comes to mind? Well, you
1: know, I've been really fortunate, as you know, and you've been part of it with us in the booth, that it's a lot easier to be liked as a broadcaster when your team is pretty good. Nobody's ever said good (laughs) broadcast after a loss. So the fact that they've had 10 postseasons during the time I've done the games, Alex, and three no-hitters, including a perfect game, and a 20-game winning streak, there aren't too many announcers who can say that and it's serendipity. We had nothing to do with it. We're just there calling the the games, but they've given me so many thrills over the years and the the A's fans, I think one of the biggest, if not the biggest highlight has been the support I've gotten from the fans. They've been incredibly supportive of me and my family. And I I, I owe so much because we're, we're nothing in this business without that. You wouldn't last 25 years with the club if the, Fans didn't think you were doing a halfway decent job. So right. I just owe so much to how loyal they've been. It's been an incredible thing. And you think that they're members of the – kind of when you're on the air, you're thinking you're talking to your friends. And I hope they feel that way because I feel it, even though I, you, know, you don't know 99% of the people who are listening. But. So it's hard for me to nail it down. The winning streak was incredible all the postseasons, although they've ended in disappointment. The most emotional I've ever been was the last out of Braden's perfect game. So, you know, I know you and I have talked about that before. So that was the, the one, I guess, single most emotional moment for me in,
0: in all the years. There are so many to choose from. And I love what you say about the fan because you are the conduit, to, you know, to the team for the fans. And that's I think that's what's what's special, especially about the radio, where it's, it's almost a, a personal relationship in a certain way that you have with the fans.
1: You hope so, and I've had great partners. I mean, I have Bill and Vince, and, you know, nobody works harder than Vince, and he's just – you know, he is – the work that he does on the field with the players and coaches and what – he adds so much to the broadcast, as you know, because you've been up there and you've, you've been with us uh, for so many of our games.
0: One of the most diligently prepared people I've – I've, I've no doubt. I mean, I, you know, and I haven't been around a lot of it, but I can't imagine there's many people that are as prepared as Vince Contronio.
1: Well, that's the big reason we hired him, to be honest with you. You know, it really was, you know, because in our
0: business, so much of it is subjective.
1: There's a lot you can't control about how people are going to perceive what you're doing. You can control how hard you work, and uh, Vince is at the top of the list when it comes to that.
0: I want to end it with this. Uh, there was there was a cool piece in the in the Athletic about how fortunate we've been in the Bay Area with with so many great broadcasters. I mean, we mentioned Bill King, yourself, Vince. All the guys with the Giants, uh, you know, obviously John Miller and Krug and Kipe and and Dave Fleming, I mean, we are really spoiled as young broadcasters in the Bay Area, but the piece in the athletic that that I thought was cool that if you haven't read it and you do have a subscription to the athletic, I invite you to to check it out. It basically outlines all these young broadcasters that grew up in the Bay Area that kind of borrow things from you, or you know from you and 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 other and all the other guys I just mentioned. The lights have taken effect. It's the like- lights have taken full effect, right. Uh, how cool is that uh, for, for you to read and, and just know that you've been an influence on, on people like myself?
1: Well, I guess you hope you've made an impact with people. And, you know, I've tried to reach out to a lot of minor league broadcasters and broadcasters in college, even in high school over the years, they've reached out to me. So if we can pass along some of the things that we've learned over the years, uh, it makes it all the more rewarding. I was really touched by the story, and Dan Brown did a great job on it. So uh, it's included in that list with um, the people that you just mentioned, I think. And there's no rivalry. We love the Giants broadcasters. A lot of, I think the Fossey Kruko thing over the years, right?
0: I love the rapport yeah. you guys have with them when they come to the – Yeah, they they're all the good friends. John Miller wrote
1: the – John wrote the forward to the the Bill King book. So. Yeah great respect for what they do. So I, I really was, I was touched by the story. It really was, it really, it really was, was um, a nice thing to read for sure.
0: I had a lot of fun reading it. I mean, I, I, I mean, that's the same as, I think, and I think that's the cool thing about our job is it, you know, it kind of feels like each individual person is almost, I mean, there's definitely a lot of yourself in there, but it, you're almost a patchwork of of people that you've grown up listening to and that influenced you. I am for sure.
1: I mean, like, when i first started i thought that i had a lot of scully influence and it's all it's there you're never going to lose that and i don't think you should try to but you want to be yourself too so i thought if i was using too much of the scully phraseology i would try to eliminate some of that stuff if i could but a lot of it is there and it's like a musician you know if you're a great if you're a musician you're gonna all those influences become part of who you are but then, then there's that search to find your own voice. And that was a hard thing for me. It took many years for me to kind of figure that out because it was really intimidating for me to work up here in the Bay Area and think, how can I possibly be even half as good as all these, these people you were just talking about? And so you have to find your own voice, but I don't think you should deny that those influences are there. Like I said, with Bill, especially with um, football and basketball, for sure
0: without a doubt. I mean, I, I'm looking forward to, to hearing you again, Ken on the radio and, and getting baseball back and feeling a sense of normalcy, like we were talking about at the beginning. And I guess that's how we'll kind of tie this one together with a bow. Um, but, uh, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure, uh, you know, talking to you and, and I hope that, uh, well, certainly I know, I know a lot of ports fans are, are A's fans as well. And, uh, getting to hear from you is, is, uh, is a real treat, I hope, for for anyone that's listening to this. So thank you.
1: Well, I hope they're going to hear you doing play-by-play because you did a great job not only with uh, baseball but with uh, the Gales. You've had some great games to call up at St. Mary's in the Randy Bennett era. So you're going to go a long ways in this business, man, and you know how how I feel about about what you do and, and how you present it. So wish you the best of luck, and it was a lot of fun being on your show.
0: Thanks so much, Ken. I really appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to talking to you in the very near future. Okay, Alex. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Portside Pod. If there are topics or interview subjects you'd like to hear on future episodes, tweet at me at ajensen 86 The Portside Pod is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other platforms, as well as at our home anchor.fm slash Stockton ports. You can also visit the ports website at StocktonPorts.com and follow the ports on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and other social media platforms. Until next time, I'm Alex Jensen. Please stay safe and we'll talk to you on the next episode of the Portside Pod.